0: So something that you, if you, in case you don't know me, something you should probably know about me is, that, uh, is, is two things. One, um, I'm not a very handy person. Uh, I don't fix things. Like if you need, ever need something fixed, um, like with a car or with your house or um, really anything, no matter how small, how big it is, I'm not your guy because I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix things. I'm not a handy guy. I know just enough to call somebody and hire them. Um, and uh, by the way, that was country hire them, not the town of Hiram. Um, But anyway, uh, so I'm not a very handy guy. I can't really fix things. Uh, There's other people for that. We have very gifted people in this room who are good at those things. Uh, Second, uh, I am not a very patient individual. Just not. uh, I'm not naturally patient. No one really is, but like even more so, I'm just not patient. It's just not an attribute uh, that comes supernaturally to me. It's something that, um, man, the Lord is just really still trying to develop in my life. I'm very resistant to that idea. Uh, the reason I tell you this is because I've been married for about a year and a half, and these are very important attributes um, for early on in marriage. And not for the reasons you may think, but when, when you get married, when, when we got married, there was a lot of things that, that I needed to be prepared and equipped to do that I was not prepared and equipped to do early on in marriage. And I was just a massive failure at this one thing that is such a huge part of early on in your marriage. And once again, it may not be what you think, but it is putting together furniture, uh, like Ikea furniture, like Walmart furniture. Um, It's because we're like balling on a budget. And And so Walmart is like, man, you know, that's nice, for, like, that's a big deal for us. And so I'm gonna tell you this though, and don't, don't, like, don't judge me when I say this, okay? I'm not a very handy guy, but I, I like design. Like I like designing things, you know? I'm more Joanna than Chip. It just is what it is. <laughs> Don't judge me for it. It just is what it is. But I like design things. I like the way things look. I'm thinking about, I'm like, I'm that guy that like steps back and I'm like, I don't really know if this fits in this space here. Um, but that's just how I, how, that's how I am. And one of the rooms that I was very just like intentional about, because we got married in the middle of COVID, was, was the office at home. Because once again, like we were, we were working from home and like, y'all remember COVID, that little thing? Like, so I needed like a space to kind of work in. And so I was really excited to like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be able to like have an office. Like, I'm... And, and so I started going online and was looking for like office furniture and I was going to Ikea and I was like, nope, can't afford that. And I was going to like Target and I was like, still can't afford that. And, but finally I like went to Amazon right? Hallelujah for Amazon. Praise Jesus. And I went on there and I found this thing. that was like, it's aesthetically pleasing. Like it looks good, but but I can, I probably still couldn't afford it, but I could purchase it. Um, and, and it was like this L-shaped desk. There were some shelves. I was like, yo, this is perfect, perfect. And so I was super excited for this to all come in. And I don't know what I was expecting in my mind, like that it was just going to like a dude was just going to hop out with like a completely put together L-shaped desk on his shoulders and like come and put it in my, in my office for me. That's not what happened. So I show up at the house and there's like these three super, super thin cardboard boxes. Like super, super thin. Like you can't fit furniture in that thin. And I was like, there's no way. There's no way that that's what that is. Um, and uh, sure enough, I like start opening up the box and there's this You know, it's not wood, but it's like supposed to look like wood. Supposed to be like wood. Um, It's the wood I could afford. And so, like I open up the box, and it's like starting to come out. And I'm literally looking at this, going like, "This is, this is not good." Um, Like God, this is, this is not good. And so I'm looking at it, and it's just like a big pile of stuff sitting in the room. And I'm just going, oh, this is not good. But so I start trying to put it together. I start trying to, you know, I'm looking at the piece of paper that's written in whatever language and I'm trying to put these things together. And Katie, bless her heart, walks in and I'm in the middle of this, it's not my best moment. And she's like, do you need help? Can I help you? And I was like, get out, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> get out of my face. Um, and so she was like, okay. But she just kind of stands there, you know, not hovering, but not leaving. You know what I mean? Like she's standing there. She's like watching me do it. And she just kind of gradually like picks up the piece of paper that's got directions on it. Just kind of looking at it. She's like, hmm, you know, and she's like watching you do something. You're screwing it in. She goes, hmm, okay. Sure you want to do that? You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, I got this. Well, then I finish, and I'm like so proud. I'm like standing back. I'm like, yeah, handy. And I like put it up against the wall and it's like all out of whack. I was, I was like, like a shelf that was supposed to be here is here. And a shelf that's supposed to be here is here. I'm like, this is not. A so I like, I'm angry. And there's just this moment that like, I can just feel kind of like the Holy Spirit, like levitating out of my body. And it's like, I'll be back in a few minutes. You know what I mean? And, and it's like totally destroyed. But so I go to this thing and I start like taking it apart and I'm just I'm throwing it in the ground. And I'm, there's just, once again, it's just a big pile on the floor. And I'm like, I'm going to walk away now. I'm just gonna walk away and I leave, and and I take that evening. and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Katie. I snapped at you. I did this. I did that. It's just the furniture thing, and I'm not very patient. And she's like, I know. I married you, and so like the next day I come back to it, and it's like, okay, Katie's gonna help me. I like swallow my pride. She's like there. She's very patient. Um, here, this goes here. You know, she's like telling me what to do. I'm like, yes, ma'am, and. Um, <laughs> And, and then finally, like, we get done cause we're looking at the directions she's helping me and we get done and we're looking at this. And now like when people come into our house, it's like, it's like, wow, like we get compliments on it. Like, wow, this is a really nice room. Like your office is super nice. And I'm like, man, thank you so much. Did it all by myself. No help at all. And it was just a really, really nice thing. But the thing is, is when they walk into this room and they look at it, they have no idea the horror story that's behind this. Right, they just don't. They have no idea that this was once just a pile of junk on the floor, and I was using like less than holy like language and thoughts towards this pile of stuff, and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it put together, and it just was a really frustrating experience. But they don't see that. All they see is the finished product of this furniture that's that looks good and it's strong and it's beautiful and it works. And the reason I tell you that is because I think it's a really cool picture of of what this phase of our life looks like, about what young adulthood looks like, is that we have been thrust, right, into adulthood. It's like we didn't see it coming. You know, it's like the whole time you're growing up and you know, and you you like talk about adulthood, you're gonna be 18 one day and you're gonna be an adult. And then all of a sudden you become an adult and you're like, oh my gosh, I was not expecting this. I did not see this coming. I have to pay for th- my own money? Like I have to buy my own, I have to do this on my own? What are, you ta- what are you talking about? And it just shocks us. And all of a sudden we have to try to put things together and figure it out, right? And not only like with our lives, like we're trying to put these things together and figure them out, but even more specifically when it comes to like our beliefs and our values and the way we think, right? There's a, there's a term that's become really, really, hot topic over the past couple of years. And it's not really a new term. It's not really a new idea, but it is something that is getting a lot more coverage than it used to. And it's this idea of deconstruction. How many of you have heard that word before, deconstruction? Um, So this idea of of deconstruction is, is something that if you do it really, really well, if you do it well, if you do it like a, the right way, it can actually be a very productive thing. It can be something that's very helpful, that's very good, that's very healthy, that leads to something great. But if it's not done well, if it's not done well, it can end up being just a big pile of what could have been sitting on the floor, right? But if it's done really well, there may be a horror story behind it. There may be some difficulty behind it, but at the end, at the end of it, it's something that's beautiful and strong, if it's done really, really well. And so what is deconstruction? Well, in its original meaning, deconstruction meant to openly and calculatedly investigate the nuances of belief, to to take away what isn't healthy, good, or right, or correct, and, and to do that with the intention of replacing it with what is good, healthy, right, and correct. Right? Like, this is part of, of growing up. Like, you have been raised in an environment at home, you've been raised in church, you've been raised in, in whatever environment that you have, and we're grateful for that. No one's here to, 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 like, throw shade on that tonight, but not everything was correct, right? Like, we've all grown up in environments where you get out of it and you realize, okay. Like, with the best intentions that they had, we weren't 100% nailing it. You know what I mean? And so I get into adulthood, and I have to kind of reevaluate some things. I have to kind of reevaluate what I believe about this. Like, some of you guys voted for the first time out of adulthood, and when you do that the first time, you're probably doing that just kind of how whatever you were formed to believe. But as you grow up, you begin to kind of have your own thoughts when it comes to politics. You begin to have your own thoughts when it comes to life. You begin to have your own thoughts when it comes to your beliefs or your values or these kind of things. And it's just part of being an adult. You you become your own person to an extent, and you begin to take your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own life experiences, and they shape what you believe or what you think. This is something that we all go through. We start to deconstruct these things. And we're gonna talk about in a second, what what we often forget to do is to reconstruct some things. We deconstruct, we forget to reconstruct, because when we talk about deconstruction, at least today in culture, when we say deconstruction, what we really mean is demolition. We take what was built up and we absolutely destroy it. We don't don't take away what, what what was not good or unhealthy or bad with the intention of building it back up. No, we just try to destroy whatever was in place that had any kind of authority on my life or any kind of you need to live this way and we rebel against that and we destroy it. We say, no, that's not good for me. And so rather than investigating the nuances of belief and taking away what's good, what's right, taking away what's not good, what's not right, what's unhealthy, and replacing it with what is good, right, and healthy, we just destroy anything. And this usually means you replace uncomfortable tenets with culturally or personally popular ideas. Things that were hard, things that didn't necessarily fit your desires, or things that you didn't necessarily want to submit to, and you just say, that's not for me. Let me destroy that and throw that to the side and put something else in its place that's much more comfortable and appealing to me. And that's what... That's what our generation has loved to do. And what we're going to talk about in a second is that, not to, not to throw the blame off of ourselves, it's totally our fault. But at the same time, it's not all on us. Like there's some, culturally, there's some cultural things that we've kind of been raised up in and grown up in that has kind of shaped us this way. We're going to talk about those in a bit. But now you're an adult. You're a grown person. And so even though not 100% of these things may be our fault, they are now our responsibility, right? It's our responsibility to look at our lives, to look at our beliefs, and to take away what isn't right, what isn't good, what isn't healthy, and to replace it with what is good, right, true, and healthy. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. We hit on this a little bit last month is he's writing to the church in Rome once again, surrounded by a culture similar to the one that we're in, a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility. As long as you perform these religious rituals, we really don't care what you do any other time of the day. You can do whatever you want. And, and Paul is writing to this church, these Christians who are trying to live faithfully in the midst of this culture. And he says, listen to me, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed. Don't be shaped. Don't be be formed by what's going on around you. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, a different way of thinking. And he says this is going to take effort. It's going to take effort. It's something that you have to do. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to take ideas and culture and these other things, and you have to form a new way of thinking that's going to lead you into the future. But he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may what? What? Know God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, things that are dangerous, that are harmful, that aren't good, that aren't healthy, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may know the will of God, what is good and right and healthy and true. And this is our responsibility as grown people now. We no longer get to use the excuse of everybody else we no longer get to use the excuse of culture or the world or whatever else. No, you're grown. We have to be intentional now. We have to do things. We have to take responsibility for things. And so this, the reason I, I love this passage that we read tonight is because this is what Jude is talking about. This is what Jude is talking about. So let's get some, let's get some feedback on Jude. Everybody, everybody good? You still with me? All right, Jude. Let's look at him. So first of all, who the heck is Jude. Well, scripture says that Jesus had four brothers. You can look at Matthew chapter 13 and find them all listed. And one of these brothers is James, who also wrote the book of James. But that passage also tells us that he has a young brother named Judah or Jude. And this, past, this passage right here, this letter right here is written by the younger brother of Jesus, Jude, the youngest brother of Jesus and a brother of James. And the, the amazing thing about Jude and James, both as we read these letters, is that when you look at scripture, specifically in John chapter 7, you see that they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was, to the point that they actually make fun of him. There's another passage where it says that Jesus' family comes to him while he's speaking in the marketplace and they literally call him crazy. And then in John chapter 7, we see Jesus' brothers actually make fun of him because they don't believe he is who he says he is. And so if they don't even believe in him, something happened because we're reading him talk about this, right? So something shifted, something happened. What happened? Well, we see in Acts chapter 1 that when they're in the upper room, right? We just read this in our reading plan. When they're in the upper room, Jesus has ascended into heaven and and Jesus said, go back and wait for the Holy Spirit. Pray and wait for the Holy Spirit. Well, they get back to the upper room and it says that the disciples of Jesus are there along with his family and his brothers praying for the Holy Spirit. Something happened. They went from making fun of their brother who thought that he was the Messiah and they totally didn't believe in to now they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come down. What happened? They saw their brother die And then they saw him no longer be dead. That will change some things in your life, right? So you go from Jesus, you're not really the Messiah. We don't really believe in you. You're just crazy to, oh my gosh, you were dead. Now you're alive. You really are him. And so we're going to listen to everything you say. And so they go to Acts or they go to the upper room in Acts and they begin to pray for the Holy Spirit to come down. And so we're reading a letter, we're reading an apologetic, we're reading a challenge from someone who once struggled with disbelief. Who had to go through his own deconstruction of sorts, who believed a certain way something happened. He had to tear down that belief because something else was true. And so he's writing from personal experience. This is totally relevant to our lives. And the, the beautiful thing is watch how he starts out this letter. He says, I'm Jude. A, and then he doesn't say the brother of Jesus Christ. So you better listen to me because I'm family with him. No, he said, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. That, that word servant is the Greek word dolos. That means Slave. I'm enslaved to Jesus. He said, yes, that used to be me. I didn't believe. I saw my brother go from dead to not dead. I'm now enslaved to him. He is my Lord. He is my master. I'm following him. Yes, that was me. This is a new way now. Jude, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus and the brother of James. And who is he writing to? I mean, we're just gonna do a little inductive Bible study here together. Who is he writing to? He says, he starts out with beloved right or he addresses them right here in the in, in the first verse he says to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ he's writing to Christians so he's we don't really know exactly what church he's writing to we think that this may be a letter that kind of circulated among all the churches but he says i'm writing to you the beloved those kept those called by Christ and i need you to know something what's the purpose of this letter Let's just read verses one through four. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Very sweet opening. Go into, go into verse chapter, or verse three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for certain people, (laughs) it's like subtweet, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. he says, they're ungodly people who have crept in unnoticed. But I love this because he says, I had had something I was gonna talk to y'all about. I wanted it to be this super encouraging letter where I was just gonna talk about the mutual salvation that we have in Jesus, that we've all been saved. And this is such beautiful news to all be encouraged. He said, instead, I find it necessary. I've got to write to you about something else because I've heard some news. I'm looking at the landscape of what's happening. I find it necessary to write to you about something else. And so I appeal to you because I've got to write about this. I appeal to you to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. There used to be a show on TV called The Contender, and it was a boxing show. What he's saying right here is I'm writing to you to fight for this. You have to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he says, because certain people have brought some bad ideas into this thing. There are certain people who have kind of, who've kind of put some bad ideas in your head. And so I find it necessary to write to you, to put the right thoughts on, on your mind. And so for us in here, there have been some bad ideas come into our lives, all of us. We all have bad ideas. We all have things that are, that are misconstrued, that are not necessarily accurate. Like the rest of our lives is for figuring this stuff out, right? Are we humble enough to be able to say that we don't have it all figured out yet? And so Jude is writing to them saying, there's some bad ideas that have gotten leaked in. Let's address those. And so tonight, like that's what we're gonna talk about. And there. There's a book um, that, I'm, that I'm currently walking through called The Coddling of the American Mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure, super hope-filled. Um, and, uh, and they talk about a couple of these, these bad ideas that I think are plaguing us today. Jude is talking about some bad ideas that are plaguing them here, and we're gonna talk about some bad ideas that are plaguing us today. And they talk about these untruths. They list three, I'm gonna give us two that I really think I, really think I identify with, I identify kind of in our culture more than anything. And they, they define an untruth. They say it must meet three specific criteria to be, to be classified as an untruth. One, it must contradict ancient wisdom. It's got to contradict ancient wisdom. That all the things that have been written before that we classify as wisdom, including scripture and ancient books, that these untruths go against what has been true about humanity all along. It goes against ancient wisdom. Second, it contradicts modern psychological research on well-being. That we know today with modern science and psychology that this is not healthy for us. And then third, third, it's harmful to the individuals and communities who embrace it. We watch people do these things. We step back, we evaluate and go, that didn't go too good. And so he said, this is what makes these things untruths. And they talk about two. The first one they talk about is the untruth of fragility. The untruth of fragility. And the untruth of fragility basically says that it's best for us if we avoid anything difficult, unpleasant, or painful. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. That's, that's what they're saying. Like if you go through something hard, it's not good for you. So we need to avoid anything hard, difficult, or unpleasant at all costs. Avoid pain, the untruth of fragility. And then the second one is the untruth of emotional reasoning. You can always trust your feelings is ultimately what this one is saying. And so they talk about these two untruths that are plaguing our culture and they specifically talk about how this is evident in, in college campuses and in young adults today and, and a lot of the different things in our culture as they say these two untruths are plaguing us. But the fact of the matter is, is if we're honest in this room, this has also leaked in here and formed a lot of our theology as well. That we also look at this and allow this to kind of shape the way we view God and we view life and we read through the lens of scripture. And so how does the untruth of fragility technically get into maybe our minds or into our theology today? Well, some of us may believe that, that God exists to make sure I don't go through anything hard or painful. Like that the purpose of God is to protect me from anything that could be hard. And that if something is hard, it must not be from God. If something is difficult, it cannot be from God because God wouldn't command me or challenge me or tell me to do anything that could possibly be hard or difficult. And so even think about the way that this may dictate or impact our obedience, right? So I'll give one example. I'm, I'm a natural introvert. People terrify me. Um, just kidding, being a little dramatic. But so for instance, if I like evangelism, right? Anybody like, when I say evangelism, you're just like, oh my gosh, like this is terrifying. Right, So for me, this is something that I've always struggled with. And one of the things that I can talk myself out of is that, man, this is really uncomfortable. If I feel uncomfortable, I know he's gotta feel uncomfortable. Maybe I just shouldn't do this because this is hard. And a lot of us, we can, that's the one that I use. That's an excuse I use all the time. But a lot of us, we have these other areas that for us may be challenging, maybe hard. And rather than walking through it and dealing with it and saying, man, how could God maybe use this to mold me and shape me? We bow out and say, that's too hard. And the thing that's crazy about this is that as, we are, as we're reading this book together, as we read through the New Testament, you are going to find out there is no way this is true. Because a lot of the guys that we read and that we, we just read about Stephen being martyred, being killed for his faith. And a lot of us, we may try to like bend out of that and be like, oh, surely God wasn't aware. And then we keep reading and we find out that Jesus is actually standing at the right hand of the father, looking at Stephen, welcoming him into, the, into heaven. And then you keep reading and all these people who are faithful to the cause of Christ and building the church, they end, up, they end up dealing with horrible persecution and suffering. And a lot of them end up laying down their life for the faith. But man, God doesn't, God exists to protect us from suffering. He doesn't want me to go through anything hard or painful or unpleasant. And just one thing that I'd like to point out to us as we think about this is Christ himself suffered like God didn't exempt himself from this. He came to us in humanity and said, I'll suffer too. And then we say, man, I'm gonna follow Jesus and Jesus is the one who laid down his life. It reminds me of a Martin Luther quote. He says, he says we follow the one who wore a crown of thorns and yet we expect a bed of roses. And it's a funny quote, but it's, but it's really true in a lot of ways. And Jesus said, man, I want you to to follow me. And then there's many times throughout the gospels that Jesus actually promises us and warns us that, hey, you're gonna suffer. If you follow me, you're gonna suffer. But he always brings it with good news that I wanna remind us of tonight. And I love the way John Piper sums this up. He says, sin promises short-term pleasure, but ends in long-term misery. Christ promises short-term hardship that results in everlasting happiness. Suffering for Jesus is temporary, but pleasure in Jesus is eternal. And so for those who are in Christ, this is good news. This life is as hard as it's ever gonna get for you. Those who are in Christ, this life is as hard as it's ever gonna get for you. You can look with hope, you can look with anticipation that it's gonna get really good. But we endure for now, knowing that Christ is gonna give us pleasure in the end. And the fact of the matter is is that whether you're a Christian or or not, you're going to suffer in this life. You're going to suffer in this life. But if you're following Jesus, I can promise you this, your suffering is not meaningless. It means something. It matters. It's doing something in your life. The second thing that they talk about is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Follow your feelings. This idea that you can always trust your gut. You can always trust your feelings. And scripture is always very clear with us that that our hearts are broken, that, that, that we desire things that are broken. We desire things that are fleeting. We desire things that don't necessarily end in our long-term happiness. Why? Because feelings don't care about you, <laughs> right? Feelings are, feelings are a third party, right? They're not, they're not looking at life and looking at things going, my goal is to make sure that I take care of Jeremy and lead him to something that's really good and worthy and valuable. No, feelings feel. Because the fact of the matter is, is that we have to, our mind is something, once again, that we have to be, that we have to shape, that we have to form. And our hearts are something that need to be led, not followed. We have to lead our heart. We have to lead our feelings, not follow them. And so, so anyway, like, it's funny how we, we think about this in certain things. But imagine if I felt this way about work or marriage or other things, how often would you quit? I really hope like a light bulb didn't just go up to somebody who's like, I've quit seven jobs in the past six months. Um, it was all their fault too. Um, but no, like imagine if this is how we dealt with everything in life—that when it got hard, we just quit because it didn't feel right or it felt hard, right? Like no, we know that there's a level of which our feelings have to be led, that they have to be steered, and so this is an untruth, and so. These aren't the only two, but there's many more that have leaked into our faith. And so looking at Job to, close, uh, to, to start to get to the ramp off is what do we do with this? What do we do with these ideas? What do we do with these belief systems, these values that aren't necessarily healthy or good? How do we fight for the faith? And that's where we're going to dive into our scripture really quickly that Katie read. Is Jude, I don't even have to say chapter one because it's only one chapter, 17 through 25. is he says, but you must remember, beloved. He's talking about these unhealthy, unbiblical ideas or thoughts that have leaked in. And he talks about the motives that are those who have kind of brought these in, that culture's not really caring about you. It's not really trying to lead you to anything good. And then he says, but you, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers, just meaning false teachers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, and this is where we're getting our applications for the night. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so it's really, it's really one application tonight. He says it's this, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. He says, but you beloved, right? You gotta remember these things, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And I know a lot of you are reading that and going, he actually says a lot more than keep yourselves in the love of God. But this is where you have to pay attention to like language and participles and different things in literature, is that he says, there's these things that you're doing, but ultimately what it is, is you keep yourselves in the love of God. And so... The one thing that he tells us to do is keep yourselves in the love of God, but he says you do it by doing these things. And he says, first, you build yourself up in the faith. You build yourself up in the faith. Something I want you to pay attention to as we look at that is he says, build yourself up. Meaning who's responsible for your spiritual development and your reconstruction. Build yourself up up. Build yourself up in the faith, beloved, that you have some thoughts and some ideas and some beliefs that aren't healthy, that aren't good, that aren't true. And he looks at us and he says, build yourself up. Keep yourselves in the love of God by first of all, building yourself up in the faith that your mind has to be formed. Your heart has to be led. And the question is, what is shaping you? What is conforming your mind? What are you allowing to lead your heart? And where is it being led? Some, some helpful questions to maybe, to maybe ask ourselves as we're thinking about deconstruction. Some of you may be in here and you're kind of evaluating this in your life, whether you're, whether you're kind of young in the process or whether you're kind of in the middle of this. There's some really helpful questions to ask. Who initiated this? Who initiated this deconstruction process? Who started this? What began this? What birthed this experience? Was it a conviction? Was it my experiences? Was it something that I, that I saw in scripture? Was it something that happened to me that I felt? Where did this begin? Where did you begin to kind of think about these things, what started this? Maybe where I'm doubting, or things that I'm struggling with, what started that? Was it that you, you read something that was true? Or is it that you experience something hard? Like a lot of us in here, we, we maybe have experienced some church hurt in the past, right? And some of that's real, some of that's legit. Some of us, we say that we've experienced church hurt and what we've really experienced is someone said something that we didn't really, we didn't really like. They were rebuking us using the word of God and it hurt our feelings and we didn't like it but some of us have really experienced some hard things at the hands of other people. Like that's legit, that's real. But the the problem is, is that that's not the hand of God. That's not the word of God. That's not coming from, it's not coming from him. And so like we have to ask ourselves, where did this start? Was it a product of God? Was it a product of something he told me that I'm now finding out I've got to reshape some things around his word and what he's saying? Or is it that, man, my feelings are something I experienced that was hard that made everything kind of crash down around me. Second, what are we searching for? What are you looking for? Right, as you kind of go around and you're looking for these other things, are you searching for truth? Or are you searching for something that's gonna maybe like just nourish our feelings and our emotions and make us feel better? Or are we on a search for What's real? Are we on a search for what's true? Are we on a search for what's genuine? Are we on a search for what has authority that we can base our lives on and trust it? And then thirdly, where are we going to find it? Where are we looking for it? Because a lot of people, their first move when they begin to deconstruct and question a lot of things is rather than leaning in and asking questions, they check out, they isolate. They isolate and they get alone with their emotions rather than leaning into community and getting alone with the scriptures. Right? Like if you're questioning things, if you're having difficulty, no one said that you have to leave. You can lean in with that. You can bring those questions. You can ask those in community. You can open up the word of God with your questions and your doubt. You don't have to leave. You don't have to isolate. You don't have to run away. And I love how the writer of Hebrews he talks about this process as we enter into adulthood that we have to begin to take responsibility for our own growth and he says he says some of you have become dull in your hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God you need milk not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And what he's saying is some of us have been on milk way too long and it's time for us to grow up and get, and get into some things. Time for us to grow and develop and begin to look at some hard things and begin to eat solid food because that's what's gonna make us grow mature. That's what's gonna build us up in the faith. So he says, keep yourselves in the love of God by building yourself up in the faith. And then he says, by praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying here is just to pray in line with the will of God. To pray in line with the will of God. That it's in harmony with him. But the biggest thing for us is that they persevere in prayer. They persevere in prayer. They pray when it's hard. They pray when they don't feel it. I love, this. I love this quote by Samuel uh, Chadwick. He says, "'There is no power like that of prevailing prayer, "'of Abraham pleading for Sodom, "'Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night, "'Moses standing in the breach, "'Hannah intoxicated with sorrow, "'David heartbroken with remorse and grief, "'Jesus in the sweat of blood.'" He said, these examples we have in scripture are those who pray with passion to the point of blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. It brings power, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. He says, when you're suffering, when it's hard, when you're confused, when you don't feel it, what do you do? You persevere in prayer. You keep praying. I love that story in the Old Testament where Jacob wrestles with God and it says he won't let go. He says, I'm not gonna let go till you bless me. I'm not gonna let go till you bless me. I'm not gonna let go till you bless me. And some of us, we've walked away. We've walked away rather than persevering in prayer and God's just going, man, come on, keep going. Keep persevering. It's not meaningless. I'm teaching you something. And to encourage you, D.L. Moody, I love the way he says this. He says, some people think God does not like to be troubled with our constant coming and asking. He said, the real way to trouble God is to not come at all. God's saying, keep coming. Keep coming. You're not bothering me. Keep persevering in prayer. Keep praying. Keep coming. I know it's hard. I know you don't feel it. I know it's confusing. I know you doubt, but keep praying. And then the, then the last thing, and I love this, is he says, you keep yourself in the love of God and you wait for mercy. Waiting for mercy. He says you build yourself up in the faith, you pray in the Holy Spirit, and you wait for mercy. A lot of us hate this word. To wait. To wait for mercy. He says, you build yourself up in the faith. You keep digging in the scriptures. You keep growing in maturity. You keep asking the hard questions. You keep digging deep. You persevere in prayer. You keep praying in the Holy Spirit. You keep praying when you don't feel it. You keep praying when you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and no one's answering. You keep going. And then thirdly, he says, and you wait. As you do this, you wait. I was reminded yesterday, I came across something from my own life. This subject is really near and dear to my heart. Um, um, back in January 2017 I was a mess a mess and it was actually a lot longer season than that I just saw this reminder from January 2017 and I just fell out of, I just felt out of college again um, I had been I had been dumped all worked out, all good um, I had been dumped I was living in sin. I was struggling with these things that I'd been fighting for a long time and I just couldn't, I couldn't get rid of. it. I was doing life alone. I had just moved back home to live with my parents and uh, I was working in HVAC and once again, I'm not a handy, like I'm not good with things, but I had a buddy who was like, hey man, come, come work in HVAC for me. He knew I didn't need to be alone and so he gave me a job and on top of that, I'd just been placed on, on antidepressants. I was, really, I was really going through some, through some junk and I, I needed some help. And I was just in a really, really, really bad place. I was falling apart and I was ready to run away. Um, I just had this recurring kind of dream, this thought that I would just, you guys heard me the last gathering talk about going to St. John Island. I was like, I could just go live in a shack on the beach at St. John Island by myself. And um, I just kind of had this thought of just going and leaving and isolating and running away as far and as fast as I possibly could. And I needed a prayer because I didn't know what to say. I didn't have anything to say to God. And Psalm 42 is placed on my heart. And this, this passage is just absolutely destroyed in my Bible and it's absolutely tear-soaked because I, I didn't have anything to say. I had nothing to offer. I was ready to quit. And Psalm 42, prayer of David. And every day I would literally wake up kind of regretting the fact that I had, I had just woken up. I, was, I just wanted to sleep forever. And I rolled out of bed and I would just fall on my face and I would open this up and I would pray it because I didn't have anything else to say. And, uh, and David starts out and he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And then he asks this question he questions his own soul, and I love this. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Why are you so sad within me? And he says, hope in God. He's preaching to his soul. He says, put your hope in God. Other translations, in the original context, this Hebrew word is you call, and it means wait. It means wait. For I shall again praise him. And I would wake up every day and I would pray this over and over and over again. He keeps going and he says, where, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why won't you pay attention to me? Why won't you listen to me? Why won't you come to my rescue? And I was praying this over and over and over again. And I would do this and I would go to work and I would get into these crawl spaces for my job. And every day that was my reality. I would wake up like five o'clock in the morning I would get on my face and I would pray this passage and I would go get in the work van and I would drive to somewhere in Birmingham and I would get in crawl spaces every day over and over and over again. And what I had no idea was that in those crawl spaces, God was doing something in me. God was developing me. God was shaping me. God was with me. He was working on me. And every day I would pray and pray and pray and pray and pray this and he was working on me and he was working on me and he was working on me and he was working on me. And it took months. But eventually, I kind of came out of it. There's no like supernatural, crazy healing moment or whatever else. I just, I would wake up I would read the scripture, I would get on my face and I would pray this scripture over and over and over again and I would wait for God to do something in my life. And he says this, wait on God, y'all call to await with expectation, put your hope in God. When you feel nothing but agony, you keep going, you wait on God, you keep praying, you keep pressing in, you wait on God, and you know what happens for those who wait? For those who wait on God, you know what happens? You know what he promises in his word? Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord... They who wait on the Lord, he will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And what Jude is saying is keep fighting, keep building, keep praying, keep believing, keep obeying, and wait. Don't run away. And, he's, and he joins this with a promise. This is where we're gonna end our time tonight As he says, as you wait, he says, this is what Jesus will do. This is what Jesus is capable of doing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, He says, God will keep you. Jesus Christ will keep you. For those of you in here that you you are in Christ, you've been saved. It's been messy. It's been confusing. You're a mess right now. You have doubts. You're trying to figure all this stuff out, but you know, you know, let me tell you, God is not letting you go. You may be pushing back from the table. You may be distancing yourself. God does not let go. Those he saves, he secures. Jesus tells us this over and over and over in scripture. John chapter six, those who come to me, I'm never gonna cast them out. I'm never gonna cast them to the side. I'm never gonna push them away. Even if they fall, even if they sin, even if they get confused, even if they start to doubt, even if they start wandering, I'm not gonna let them go, they're mine. John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. He is not letting you go. He will keep you. And second, he will present you. Why does Jesus keep you? Have you ever grasped the fact that when we cross this line, and we enter into eternity, that, that we get Jesus, right? Like he's our reward. That after all these years of enduring and suffering and struggling and trying and following the best that we can and staying faithful when we don't feel it and continuing to pray is we get Jesus at the end of this. And you may look at it and go, well, what does Jesus get? It's a pretty raw deal. For what he did, what does he get? And this is what I love about this word is that he says, blameless before the presence of his glory, he will present you with joy. He gets you. He says, when you get there and you've fought and you've struggled and you've fought the good fight of faith and you've contended and you've continued to believe and you've fought for this and you've prayed and you persevered and you continue to obey and you waited for me, that at the end of this life, when we've experienced this suffering and this hardship temporarily, but we enter into eternity and eternal happiness and pleasure with Him, what does He get? He gets you. And He presents you like a trophy before the glory of the Father and He says, Look at mine blameless before the throne, covered and righteous in Christ Jesus. And just like, just like that office furniture, right? That no one knows the backstory of that furniture. No one knows the mess that we walked through. No one knows how hard that was. No one knows how difficult that was. No one knows how many times the pieces were all over the place. Nobody knows how many times it was just a pile of junk laying on the ground. You didn't know if it was ever gonna amount to anything. It ends up being strong and beautiful and presented as something strong and beautiful, blameless before the Lord. And Jesus says, I present you. You're mine. I'm not letting you go. So what does he say? He says, don't quit. Keep believing. Keep fighting. Keep building. Keep praying. Keep obeying. Keep trusting. And wait. I will keep you. I will hold on to you and one day I will present you as a finished product, beautiful and strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you. for your word. God, thank you for the fact that your word is relevant to us. Thank you for the fact that your word speaks to us even in our modern day and in the struggles that we face. And I know that everyone in this room is battling different things, that they're feeling different things, that we're all in different phases of this process of learning what we believe, of learning who we are in you and who you are. God, learning, figuring this out. And God, the beauty of this, and this is what I love about this encouragement from Jude, God, is that in all of that wandering and figuring this out and doubting as you hold on to us, you keep us. You keep us. And you're patient with us and you're kind to us and you're good to us. And God, I thank you for that. God, I thank you that you were that way with me. And God, I know that there are some in here that that God keeping themselves in the love of God, that, that's just hard for them. They, they, they're doubting your love. They don't know your affection. They don't know Christ. They don't know how much you love them. God, would you tell them? Would you tell them? God, for those in here who have simply forgotten or they've wandered away, or they've isolated. God, may we continue to build ourselves in the faith. May we persevere in prayer when we don't feel it. And God, may we wait patiently with hope and expectation because you will come through. You always do. So God, Over the next few moments, I just pray that you would move in this room however you want to, God, that for those who need to be encouraged, for those who need to be challenged, for those who need to be comforted, God, that you would just come and make your your home among us and you would have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.